It's time to accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 564 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. Joining me on the show today is Eddie Yoon. Eddie is the founder of Eddie Would Grow, which is a growth think tank and advisory firm, and author of a really interesting book called Super Consumers. And in this conversation, we're going to dig into the value of super consumers really from a business to business standpoint. So these are super consumers of your product and your service. And these are very different than your heavy users. I mean, these are the customers, super consumers, are so the customers that can drive your growth and really account for a large percentage of your profit. So, for instance, if you're in a recurring revenue business like a SaaS company, you definitely want to tune in and listen to this one. So, uh, if you'd like to see a summary notes for this episode, go to andypaul.com forward slash 574. As always, provide a timestamp breakdown of this and all conversations on Accelerate. Now, friends, we, we all hit a sales slowdown from time to time. Oftentimes, sellers default to the notion that the solution to a slowdown is you know, adding more structure and more process. But yeah, it doesn't always work. And sometimes you need to try some new ideas to break out of the doldrums and sell up to your potential. So if you're looking for new ideas about how to amp up and accelerate your sales, then you need to read this new report I put together. It's based on the specific recommendations of more than 300 leading entrepreneurs, sales leaders, seasoned business executives that I've personally interviewed on this program. And I've compiled their practical tactics and strategies into a step-by-step guide that you can use to accelerate your sales today. So don't wait. Go to accelerate.fm forward slash accelerate to get your free copy of my report today. Also, I want to give you a heads up on a couple changes. First, for those who follow me on Twitter or want to follow me on Twitter, I changed my Twitter handle. It was at zero time selling. It's now at real Andy Paul. And also, I had been hinting the last few weeks that we're going to make some changes to our program schedule. And we're doing that uh, beginning next week. And really in response to listener comments, because most frequent comments we get about the show is, as I said, one, people love the show, but two, just too many episodes to keep up with. And so we make sure that we're not overloading people, we're not contributing to sort of the noise pollution around sales, if you will. So starting next Monday, we're actually we're going to go to three episodes a week, It'll be Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Friday will still be uh, everybody's favorite episode, Conversations with Bridget on Frontline Fridays. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, make sure you check that out. And then finally, before we get to my conversation with Eddie, I want to remind you that we want to hear your questions about sales and sales management. So send your, what, you know, what are the challenges you're really facing? And uh, if you send your question to me at andy at andypaul.com, each week I'll choose one question from those submitted the previous week to answer on my Friday conversation with Bridget. That's on Frontline Fridays. The winner, the person who submitted the question that we answer on the air, will win a free half-hour coaching call with me. That's a $250 value. So don't delay. Submit your question today. You can send it again to me at andy at andypaul.com. Or even easier, if you want to send us an audio message, Go to andypaul.com on the homepage, lower right-hand corner is red button. Click the red button. You can leave us an audio message. And we look forward to hearing from you shortly. All right, so here we go. Let's jump into it with Eddie Yoon. Eddie, welcome to Accelerate. Thanks, Andy. Great to be here. Oh, my pleasure. So you're joining us from where today? I am in Chicago. This is where I live and I've uh, been based here for the last um, 20-some-odd years. And uh, thankfully, not on a plane today. Ah. Yeah. Well, especially in summertime in, in Chicago with O'Hare, it can be a little dicey. <laughs> to your point, we just had a bad storm last night, and I have some branches in our backyard, and I was like, 
I am so glad I didn't have to travel yesterday, which I almost did. So, um, knock on wood there. Yeah, I've 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 lost track counting the number of hours I've circled over O'Hare trying to land. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, apologies to that. So. <laughs> well, that's okay. No, I, I tell people my actually my scariest airplane story ever was O'Hare in a storm where uh, we were circling, waiting for a storm to pass over the, the, the runway, I guess. Yeah. And they said they apparently cleared them. So they start accelerate going down into the glide path, going down. And you can see from the side of the plane I'm on a storm coming I'm on the left-hand side, plane storm coming from left to right, <laughs> right over the runway coming, right? And it's like, who's going to get there first? Oh my and goodness. apparently they decided at the last minute the storm was going to get there first and they couldn't land. So no more than, seemed like a couple hundred feet off the ground. They just turned like, like they went on the, you know, the wing, we went straight up and down, right? Just, wow. <laughs> just came around. Wow. I thought we were going into the ground, right? But I've never seen such a, uh, an extreme turn with a commercial airplane. And <laughs> yeah, yeah everybody, in the, everybody thought we were landing until suddenly we weren't. And we were you know, sort of at 90 degrees to where we were before. It was like, yeah, oh that, that got the heartbeat going. Nothing like playing chicken with weather, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I know on the other hand, I'm glad they, they went around, but, uh, oh, absolutely. Could have done it maybe a little less yeah. extreme, yeah. but anyway, so welcome <laughs> to the show. Now I've got a standard question to ask all my guests to start with. Mm-hmm. And so in your mind, and I know sales isn't necessarily your, your top field, but you know, in your mind, what's the single biggest challenge facing sales reps today? Yeah, you know, I, I think that it's um, managing your emotions. I, I always say, for me at least, uh, with that part of my job, but also, um, you know, if I have clients that are trying to accelerate their own sales, is that, um, you know, you, you never deserve all the credit that you do get when things are going well, and you never deserve all the blame that you get when <laughs> things are going badly, right? And, you know, it, it's it's a very much, I, what I, here's what I've noticed is that, when I'm in a situation where I really want something to happen, and if I overwant it too much, then I start to behave in ways that I probably, when I, if I were to step out of my body and look at myself, I'm like, you know what? I don't like that side of me. And the people that I'm interacting with, it, I think they can tell, right? That there's a sense of something feels odd. It feels a little, you know, there's an air of desperation. Maybe uh, that, you know, this person's interest might be elevating to the top ahead of my own. And, you know, that's when things go off the rails with it. And so, um, you know, this notion of, um, I think of two things for the individual and for running a business that every salesperson, um, you have to manage your emotions so that you are, you know, have the right ratio of inputs and outputs, right? So Mm -hmm. it's too tempting as a salesperson to measure just the outputs that I close. What are my numbers looking like? Um, But the truth of the matter is, I think anyone in the sales business of some sort, and I think everyone is, is you're really more like a farmer, right? And you should be planting seeds, watering them, you know, and just being patient. And that's the input part, which is really all that you can control. And if you can manage your emotions so that you have the discipline and, you know, focus on the inputs and are thankful for the outputs and are patient when they're not coming, then that's always going to be a better outcome than overstressing or over-celebrating something that you know, so many other things had to happen for it to happen sure. anyway. <laughs> well, and that's, yeah, and that's sort of the eternal conundrum that, that exists yes. in sales, is, especially these days with more inside sales models that are driven by 
metrics that say, hey, how many outreaches yeah. you're making today, da 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 that that yeah, sort of almost antithetical to what you you talked about because right. they are all about achieving certain you know things as opposed to an outcome that's something both you and the the buyer want. Right. Yeah, I, I wrote something about that just recently, and uh, yeah, there's actually research says that you know, people actually you know like in sales, you know, if you want something too much, your odds of getting it actually go down. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I completely believe that. And, you know, and like, and like, I think for me, it's often the the way to handle it is to kind of flip it on its head. And as a sales rep to use the same technique with the people that they're selling to, to say, you know, when you make your decision, make sure you're making it not just on the performance of the business, but the health of your business. And the example that I gave is, um, you know, Netflix just came out with their most recent earnings report. Right. The stock right. shot up because you know they added 5.2 million more subscribers, and that's what Wall Street really cares about: is mm-hmm. did the subscriber count go up? And I always say, is you know that's great, and I've I've written about Netflix quite a bit, but it's this idea of the subscriber count uh, is really an output. It's a measure of the performance of the business, which is important. But the other metric that people should pay attention to is minutes per subscriber. Like how many, how engaged are their viewers, you know, on the show? Right. And uh, that number hasn't gotten much play, but um, and it's it's a little uh, not completely transparent. But my calculations estimate that that's been flat uh, versus where it was the year before, and you know that might be cause for concern. But you think about that as like, well, they've added downloadable content, and so minutes are go up, and they're adding more and more shows, and so it should be okay in the long run. But I, I think this notion of um, make sure that you're making decisions not just on the performance, but the health of the business, and that I find is a good reminder. It's helpful to my clients, but also helpful reminder for me of, hey, man, got to balance those inputs and outputs too. I like it. I like it. Great. Well, let's let's talk about the book you've written. It's called Super sure. Consumers: A Simple, Speedy, and Sustainable Path to Superior Growth. And uh, yeah, written the book itself, admittedly more from sort of a, a B two C type type perspective. But we're going to get into B two B spin on it as well. But I thought we'd start just by sort of defining some terms for for listeners. One is okay. So what's what's a super consumer? Sure. And and how is it? I think people confuse those, as you talk about in the book, between heavy users and super consumers. So once you define it, then tell what the difference is between a, a heavy user and a super consumer. Yeah. So um, the, a super consumer I define as somebody who spends a lot and cares a lot, right? And the heavy buyer uh, moniker that you were describing, Andy, is usually it's just someone who just spends a lot. Um, now, that's important, but you don't really know why they're spending. Right? It could be uh, somebody who buys a lot of bread. Maybe they like bread. Maybe they have a bunch of teenagers in their house, and that's what it's you know required. And they don't actually like bread themselves. Well, we know they're and not gluten-free if that's the case. They're not gluten-free, absolutely, right. And I think this combination of um, whenever somebody is buying a lot, and, and again, it, it applies from bread to enterprise software to you know uh, cloud uh, uh, services or whatnot, mm-hmm. But you want somebody who cares and is kind of geeking out about the category too, right? And so I think that's the the number one difference is because for some people, you know, your listeners are like, this sounds like the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule. And it is that, but it is adding on to it a level of emotion that I think is distinctive beyond just behavioral metrics of I spend a lot. And then the second thing that I noticed is that 
it's not so much you don't count if you spend a lot or care a lot about a particular brand. Um, you need to care about the category writ large, right? So somebody who is a huge Tesla fan, um, you might be a Tesla, you know, heavy user or, or avid follower or fan. But somebody who's really into electric cars, um, that's what I would really think about as a super consumer uh, in a much more helpful way. Because uh, a lot of companies, what I find is that there's a little too much navel-gazing about their own brands and products. And um, when you talk too much to people who like you, um, they're not going to be honest with you because you know maybe they don't want to hurt your feelings mm -hmm. or they haven't tried every other service provider out there so they can't tell you objectively what you're good at and what you're not good at and so uh adding that emotion adding the wider frame of reference that's what a super consumer is and if you get that that it's a much more powerful way of looking at the world so the emotional attachment is then not necessarily to the brand correct it's it can be it's it has to be to the category writ large and okay. i think that 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 distinction is really important there so well so let's take out because you give some brand examples in the in the book. Uh, so you give an example with Gatorade, for instance. So yes. talk about that and say, tell us how it's about the the category writ large, as you said, versus the brand itself. Yeah. So um, certainly there are people who are you know Gatorade heavy users, and sure. you know now you might think of the image that comes to mind of Michael Jordan or pro athletes and stuff. But what's interesting is that um, the people for whom that are actually some of the heaviest users of Gatorade are uh, some of the day labor and construction crew crowd. And one of the interesting things, if you go back to the financial crisis in 2008, was because that that nugget and nuance was missed, um, that when the when the economy started to go down and, and housing and construction went down with it, uh, Gatorade sales fell off with it too. And so people didn't really realize that that was interconnected that way because you know they were just looking at it from a just a straight up perception of you know you might have somebody who is a weekend warrior who plays basketball uh, occasionally and hopefully doesn't sprain their ankle, you know, couch potato type person. Right. And they drink Gatorade, you know, on the weekends. Sure. Um, whereas a construction worker, that's their livelihood and their job. They've probably gotten up pretty early and they've, they're done at like 10 or 11. And Gatorade is a perfectly acceptable thing to buy and consume there. And it's, it's a, a totally different venue than what they advertise with it, but it is a different mindset of somebody who buys a lot but also cares about it uh, from a different angle, right? So the weekend warrior might be somebody who cares about it but doesn't buy a lot, and that's not as insightful as it could be. Um, somebody who buys a lot just because they're doing hard uh, labor um, but they don't care about it, that's also an important nuance. What you're really looking for is somebody who's doing both. I drink it during the week. Um, because my job requires it, and I'm playing football or soccer or baseball, whatever, on the weekends, and because that's part of my passion within that that person, will give you far greater insights about what's going on, what else they might be using. Is it not only Powerade or other uh, refreshment beverages that they're doing to kind of get to the same benefit? And you know, some of the best insights come from, you know, I'm I'm sweaty to death and I, I'm in a 7-Eleven buying this thing and I consume it 
before I even pay for it because I'm so <laughs> thirsty. And, you know, that insight comes back to, well, maybe we should make the opening of the mouth, uh, the, the, the lid, bigger to enable that guzzling dynamic that's there. So I think this notion of um, everybody has preconceptions about what different categories and brands, like who these supers might be. And more often than not, I, I find that I am surprised and others are surprised by who they actually are and why they use the category. Well, but that's a, the why is a critical point, though, because yeah, I'm thinking to your example yes. about construction workers, because one of the points you make in the book is that you know super consumers in these these categories and certain some of the brands seem to tap into some some aspirations, right? Absolutely. So, so how does that work? Let's say taking the construction worker example with with Gatorade, you know, with consumers, yeah. super consumers, and and this aspirational aspect of it. Well, so it, it's your point of, um, I always say that your typical consumer, um, generally when they make buying decisions, it's usually on one of three benefits. Um, there's rational, emotional, and aspirational benefits that you were describing. Mm-hmm. And most people just kind of stay at the rational level. Like, uh, I have a need, I am thirsty, and I need something, and I basically, and, and usually the other rational need is price. And the risk of kind of overemphasizing average people or just anyone off the street is that that's what they're going to tell you is uh, make it cheaper. That'll make me happy, <laughs> which is not super helpful, right? right? Whereas to your point, someone who is, you know, uh, working construction during the week and then, you know, also, also doing um, athletic stuff on the weekends, you know, there's an emotional component to it of like, um, you know what, it's uh, a different type of image that I'm trying to project when I'm consuming it, maybe after work and on the weekends. And I think to your point about the aspirational part of it is that maybe it is I'm doing this job so that I can um, actually graduate to something else that I really want to do. Maybe I want to be my own, start my own business uh, so that I have the flexibility to be that kind of, because the Michael Jordan image is always hanging out there, sure. but it may not be that it's necessarily I'm going to be, uh, you know, uh, a six-time NBA champion <laughs> and whatnot. But it might be that I become my own mogul, right? I'm not just a player. I'm a business as well, right? I'm, I'm I have my own. Um, I set my own path, and I, I create my own brands. And that aspiration, I think, becomes as important as being like Mike, which is kind of how they built the brand around mm-hmm. it from a mass appeal standpoint. But um, that kind of notion of, you know, Michael Jordan as a player versus Michael Jordan as um, as a successful business person uh, is a radically different idea that I think actually may have wider appeal to their audience there. Got it. Got it. So you talk about the value of super consumers being that, that is sort of a superior growth strategy because um, they can account for certain large fraction of sales even compared to um, heavy users, but they tend not to be price buyers. Correct. So I think to your point, uh, all of those things that you said are true. They're not price sensitive. They buy a lot. Uh, And the most important thing is that I think um, almost every super consumer that I've met you're not kind of born that way. You evolve to become a super consumer, right? So, and if that's the case, then what it suggests to me is that other people can become like them too, which is the real power of the idea, is that, um, yes, there are a small set of people who drive a lion's share of the category economics, and you certainly want your fair share, if not more of them. But they figured out something that allows them to use the category in different ways that actually, if other people realized 
those life hacks, as it were, mm. they might consume the category at a higher rate too. And that, you know, if, if, if um, you know, the top 10%, maybe they drive anywhere from 30 to 70% of sales. Um, what I often find is that there's about 20% of consumers in a category that are these potential super consumers. They're people who, you know, they share similar motivations like the supers do, but they only account for about 20 to 15% of sales. So they're not spending more than their fair share, right? And if you actually got them a little bit higher, um, to say 20% drove 30% of sales or 20% drove 40% of sales, then you'd actually be growing the category by 10 to 20%. And that's my, my ingoing premise is that um, every category has super consumers. And if that's the case, then there are potential super consumers. And no matter what business that you're in, I believe that it could grow 10 to 20%, which is, I think, a very different strategy for growth than handy. The category, let's say you and I compete, and it's a zero-sum game. The category ain't getting any bigger. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the only way that I can grow is to take from you. Right. right. And that creates a whole different strategy, tactical execution, that, that I actually think is not helpful for the long-term health of your business or my business. Like, you might win one year and maybe I win the next year, but we all kind of are worse off for it in the long run versus if we collectively kind of say, you know what? We think we can actually make the pie bigger, and usually what I find there is that 1% of brands capture 80% of the category growth upside. And so, um, ironically, if you were to make the category bigger for both of us, you know, I would benefit, but you would benefit disproportionately. Sure. So. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, perfect example of that. I, you know, Apple, back in the early days of PC business, when IBM entered the, the market, I mean, oh, Apple, Apple sales took off in a way they weren't growing prior to IBM entering the market. Great example. Yeah. So the super consumers, though, really are the fans. So if the people are going to be on social media or people are going to be, uh, you know, subscribing to your Snapchat channel as a brand, so more likely to be super consumers, I'd imagine. That, it's a great point because um, I always say supers, they leave digital breadcrumbs everywhere because people always say, well, that sounds interesting. How do I find them? They sound you know, like a needle in a haystack. And what I always say is that, you know, for some of us might be in really sexy categories, like, I don't know, your wine or your favorite spirits or cars or whatever. But, you know, um, it, for those of us who maybe are in less kind of, you know, <laughs> cocktail party chatter type of stuff, if anyone is on social media or online posting anything about your category that's not particularly sexy, it's to your point, Andy, they're probably into the category, right? Mm -hmm. If if they and how how people spend their time is as telling as how they spend their money. So if they've taken the time to sign up for a newsletter or an email distribution, probably a super. If they've taken any sort of effort to, you know, uh, open up their privacy, open up their time or their money and their wallet, then that's a telltale sign. Uh, the other thing that I always say is that um, if you they're they're kind of sitting in plain sight in your data, right? And that what super consumers are, uh, what they they represent are those spiky parts of the blip on your data, like an EKG. And anywhere where you see kind of unusual spikes, they're probably there, and they're probably stuff that most people have dismissed. And the word uh, in business that I hate the most is average, and kind of the hey, my average share mm -hmm. is this, my average growth rate is that, because it smooths out all the rich kind of nooks and crannies in your data that are actually revealing where these supers are. Right. And, you know, I, I think 
this whole notion of they're actually far easier to find and therefore easier to engage and learn from, and therefore growth is a lot quicker for you there. Well, yeah. I mean, you just highlighted sort of the big problems with big data <laughs> is that, A, it's big. People want to smooth yeah. it, as you say, and they don't know how to read it. I think that latter part is exactly that. Cause, and, and it's and this bizarre kind of um, uh, disposition that we have, for some reason, to avoid anomalies, right? And I think a lot of what I've discovered is that um, super consumers are easy to dismiss as weird weirdos <laughs> and, and kind of oddities and, and the like. But if you actually you know, have empathy, treat them with respect, and try to figure out why do you behave in the way that you do – there's a logical story behind it, and I think to your point, it just makes you kind of highlight, like, you know what, aberrant data, anomalies, spikiness, you know, things that are, are usually smoothed over, that's where all the good stuff is. And that, to your point, big data is hard enough to use anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, if you could actually focus it on the weird spikes, seemingly, that's actually the where you'll get the most juice out of it. So you said your wife is a super consumer of scissors. What about you? Yes. <laughs> I'm a super consumer of uh, T-shirts from Hawaii. That's, that's, <laughs> so I, 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 I'm born and raised there, so I, I, I would love to be like you and split my time in San Diego, too. But uh, I'm, I'm most of the time in Chicago, and we go back home. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, they're, they're, I don't feel so bad. I, go, I get back to Hawaii to see my folks. Um, uh, at least once a year, maybe sometimes more. And so when I show up, um, I'm sure the local T-shirt shop is like, "Here, that guy comes again because he's going to pick up, you know, six to eight to ten T-shirts." And, <laughs> wow. Now, which and, wait, 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 wait. Now, which island? <laughs> which island are you from? I, I grew up on Oahu. Oahu. So, what, yeah. What T-shirts are you buying? Uh, I buy usually. There's a local motion T-shirt store right. that I go to. Um, they have that brand, and they have the you know Hawaiian style brands that are there. And so it's close to where my parents are. Um, you know, I like the designs. I like the you know, I know my size and the like. So All right, I'll check that's it out. My default too. Yeah, I'm good. See, I, I, my third place would be Hawaii. So we. Yeah. So I go uh, three times, sometimes more a year myself. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be there shortly, so I'll have to get the name of that store. Check so, it out. The, the, the crazy shirt, t-shirt brands, that's the telltale sign that you're not a local, so don't, I mean, not to be a snob, <laughs> don't get that one, but like the, the Locomotion, the uh, Hawaiian Island Creations, there's right. a couple of them that are like, okay, that you, you, you might be from there and the like, but, but for right. me, they represent uh, a chance to, you know, kind of kick, uh, medicate my homesickness, and so... The, the part that is kind of funny about this, though, is that I wear T-shirts and shorts now in the summertime, but I wear them in the wintertime, mm-hmm. which are not particularly practical. So I end up cranking up the electricity, which makes my wife really angry. And so I have to uh, – she's like, layer. I'm like, I don't know how to layer. She's like, you've been here for 20 years. Why can't you layer? I'm like, well – and so I end up having to make her um, – because uh, I'm an early bird. I make her coffee with our Keurig. In her favorite mug right. with just the right of milk, I leave it by the bedside for her to wake up because she's not an early morning person because that allows me to kind of earn my way out of the doghouse for future things that I, I know I'm going to screw up. It's, it's like but, all, all these things that just come from a Hawaiian t-shirt. Well, I mean, that's, and that's, that's the kind of jo- the joy of this whole thing is um, I discovered this in the big data with when I was writing my book of if you're a super consumer of one category, you're a super of nine others, some of which are logical and uh, obvious and some of which are not. And so yeah, you would not think that a Hawaiian t-shirt super would be an electricity super, would be a, a coffee super. But 
you know, in the story of my life, they make complete sense and you can earn a chuckle. And that's the thing that I always tell people is um, the, the good stuff isn't in the data. The good stuff is in the story. And the not everybody is from Hawaii and maybe want Hawaiian t-shirts, but this idea of homesickness and the idea of compensating behaviors for that, that's mm -hmm. actually a much bigger idea. And that's the nugget when you can build a business or an innovation platform around the broader idea that has truth from maybe something that seems a little of a niche uh, platform, uh, but can appeal to a much wider audience. That's when you have a winner because it's, it's born out of a super consumer origin story, but has brought application to bring in other people as well, too. So... Let's talk about this in the, we talked about in the beginning, is we're going to talk about this in a B2B sort of context. Is this as applicable in a B2B space? I mean, let's take a yes. know, typical SaaS company in, in Silicon Valley. Um, you know, how does it apply? Yeah, yeah. So so I, I think um, I, it absolutely does. And so let's say you have a SaaS company, as you were describing, in the Valley. And they're trying to figure out, like, um, you know, and, and actually, I, I think to your point, uh, software as a service is a great example of, you know, the you have a central procurement person, but you know, to some degree, a large degree, your revenues are a function of how much adoption you get, mm -hmm. right, and how mm -hmm. many licenses and seats that you get. And this is where I get to this notion of um, you see it on the B two C side where social media and you know and whatnot has amplified individual voices to the point where you know it's it's a little bit interesting where so much more power has shifted to individual consumers um, who can just absolutely destroy a brand if they treat them poorly sure. with it and that the same dynamic can happen too in terms of when you're trying to drive adoption, uh, it, the good old days of like you know the CIO and the CEO all agree that we're going to do some sort of ERP transformation and you know uh, come hell or high water you're going to use it and like it right. I mean that's totally different. And what you need to do are folks who, let's say you're trying to put a new payroll uh, service in or a new sales tracking metric uh, software service into a, a, a new enterprise. Um, you want to figure out for whom. Who are the super consumers from a time standpoint, right? So in a B2B, you know, end buyer, end user situation, um, you just got to measure it slightly differently. So the end user may not be spending their own money, but what they are spending is their time, um, their productivity and the results and their own political capital within it. And if you're trying to take a, a, a SaaS offering, uh, what you really be better off doing is figuring out what set of stakeholders within the organization um, have the greatest unmet need for this. They are the, they love SaaS services, right? They love the next generation innovations that are coming out. And they're, they're always trying new things that are out there, right? Even if the company is using one thing, um, they're at conferences or they're like, hey, buddy, what are you using? Maybe that might be better, right? And so they're the, the toughest audience to get across. But when you win them over, they will do your work for you, right? You won't need the whole notion of word of mouth as an important marketing and sales vehicle is as critical on the B2B side as it is on the B2C side. And I think that this notion of let your supers do your evangelism for you is the really key part of it. And I think this it's so it's not really an either or like you can't just go after supers and your job is done, but it's a sequence of things, right? You find the supers who are really into you know SaaS writ large. 
Um, they find you figure out what needs that they have and you tailor to that. And then you figure out who's the next tranche of people that'll get you critical mass. And that's how you get, you know, the people who are the stick in the muds will mm-hmm. never convert to the, like, save them for the end, right? Right. And it's just like, and, and, and at least from a sales rep perspective, it feels good to have some momentum, right? So why, 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 why wouldn't you start with a super and then the potentials and then let that momentum carry the day for everybody else? Yeah, and I think there's some characteristics that, that the supers have, at least in B2B space, that that differentiate them from heavy users, right? Because I, I know yes. a lot of times in, in the customer success side of business, they're focusing on, on sort of the heavy users as opposed to maybe somebody who's found something different to do with the product, right? That it's yes. not, not something, not an application use that you've, part of your, your use case that you put forward to the customer, but it's like, Oh well, that's interesting. Now that's where we could grow the number of seats or number of people that are you know licenses we sold to them, um, or hey, help us penetrate a new account altogether. That yeah. uh, something just out of the different. And I and I think there's too much focus I see on the heavy users versus the people that are perhaps using it uniquely. Well, that, and I think that's the key. You, you hit the nail on the head, Andy. Is that what you're really looking for are um, use cases that you hadn't thought of beforehand, right? And so, um, the I, you know, the, one of the examples that I wrote about in HBR was the notion of Velveeta as a brand, which you know, it clearly has so much uh, correlation with SaaS as as it out there in Silicon Valley, right? Yeah. But you know, the, the Velveeta classic use case is cheese dip for a Super Bowl. You know, that happens once a year. The super consumers were using it as a Trojan horse to get their kids to eat more vegetables, right? I can't get my kid to eat broccoli, but if I dump Velveeta on it, and because it's the best melting cheese, it gets into every nook and cranny, they will then eat that. And then when you start to market the problem, not being you don't have enough processed cheese in your life, which is no one's going to raise their hand for that. (laughs) But if you market the problem as, hey, anyone, would, would you like your kids to eat more veggies? You know, a lot more hands raised for that. And I think that alternative use case that you would never thought of that a super can help you crack the code on, that's really where the opportunity is. Because I, I think back to some work that I did um, for uh, smart compressors and valves for heating, ventilation, and air conditioning companies and stuff, mm-hmm. right? They're selling these components into retailers, right? So Walmart and Target sure. and Whole Foods. And, you know, they the original use case that they had thought of, because it's, a, you know, like, hey, it can monitor electricity usage. And if you want to save money, this is the way to go. And, you know, you had a couple of people who are very cost conscious that kind of bid on that. But the ironic part that they hadn't anticipated were two two new use cases that they had seen uh, uh, that super consumers of this category had revealed to them, right? So the super, there's one type of super consumer, and think of a retailer that grew by acquisition, right? So you you don't have a standard store format. Um, you're right. buying somebody else's technology, and the guy that's running real estate is pulling out his hair or her hair, right? Because I just inherited somebody else's schematics, and my people are calling me and saying, this compressor is down. And I'm like, it's not my fault. I didn't install the darn thing, and what do I do about it? And literally, this guy was telling the client that I was serving, will you, for the love of God, will you please sell me in this way, (laughs) right? Which is, (laughs) I don't want to fix these stupid components. I want to replace them with my stuff. I can't justify it with the way that you're selling it to my CFO because you're not selling it the right way. 
I need you to redo your proposal so that it reflects total cost of ownership, right? So that, hey, I, CFO, I know this thing is only three years old, and I know it's cheaper cash flow-wise to repair it, but trust me, you know, my- Over my, 10 years, right? It pays over off. 10 years, yeah. yeah. It's going to pay off in the long run, and we'll, you know, blah, 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 blah. And so, literally, you had a super consumer trying to convince the sales rep to- increase the order, <laughs> right, so that it would make their lives easier. And I think that, that empathy and influence is really, really important. And then the, the other flip side that they got to was, um, you know, getting to really high-end retailers. So, again, um, what's interesting is that the lower end and the more mass a retailer is, like, you know, usually don't find people who are like, I'm so excited to be a mass merchant mm. and stuff, right? But if you're like a Whole Foods or you're Ralph Lauren, you're like, hey, I'm really proud to be offering the foods that I have or the special high-end clothing that I have. And the environment and the experience of the store really matters. And those people were like, no, 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 no. I don't want the smart val valves and compressors and the uh, wireless sensors to tell me when my electricity usage is going up or down. I want to know for the fresh pressed juice that I just made if – I'm going to kill somebody because the temperature set is off, right? Like I don't want yeah. a food safety risk, right? And I, but I'm going to serve more raw foods, and that's on trend. Or, you know what? Um, I have this really high-end deli case. You got to let me know when the humidity is off, so the point where I don't want foggy windows in my case that it's going to look bad, right? It looks bad all the time, right? And so, yeah, and, and it's this whole notion of like for the love of God, make my life easier or, you know, create the most premium experience because to your point about Apple, we have the highest sales per square foot of any retailer that's out there right. and I don't want it to look bad and that's what I want your technology to do for me. And so, like, I think this notion of just um, in any kind of a B2B setting, because the sales force originates from the people who made it and because the people who make it, you think about the world through the lens of, well, it does these things. And I anticipated these you know, two use cases. Supers on the, on the B2B side will help you imagine the next four to five that you hadn't thought of. And I think to your point, Andy, identify if that use, use case is really powerful. I have a whole new set of customers I never thought of beforehand. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, perfect. All right, well, Eddie, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but a great conversation, and we'll have to have you back, and we'll talk more about this. So uh, tell folks how they can connect with you and learn more about you. Oh, absolutely. Um, you can reach me on my website, um, www.eddiewoodgrow.net, so E-D-D-I-E-W-O-U-L-D-G-R-O-W.net, or you can find me at Twitter at Eddie Woodgrow. Okay. Excellent. Well, thanks. And uh, friends, thank you for joining us today. Make sure you come back again tomorrow. Listen to another great episode of Accelerate. Until then, if you get a chance, appreciate it. Go to iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. Subscribe, leave a review. Really want to hear back from you about what we can do to make this a more valuable investment of your time. So thanks again for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. 